Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. Attraction is clinging to pleasure. Aversion is clinging to suffering. Desire to live arising even among the wise is sustained by self-essence. Sukhanu shai raga, Sukhanu shai raga, Sukhanu shai raga, Dukhanu shai devesha, Dukhanu shai devesha, Dukhanu shai devesha, Svarasavahi vidushopi tatarudho vinivesha, Svarasavahi vidushopi tatarudho vinivesha, Svarasavahi vidushopi tatarudho vinivesha. An enduring theme we've encountered before and will encounter again is this dance between sukha and dukkha. Sukha, that lovely, pleasant, sweet space, contrasts with dukkha, that place of the dark, dhuk, that place of difficulty, that place where nothing is easy, that place sometimes described as suffering, and that place, as noted earlier, that we denote in so many different ways and forms all of these English words prefixed with dis, disease, dislike, disappointment, disaster, the list goes on and on. Now, when we arrive at a place, not necessarily a good place, where we only reach after the good stuff, the sweet stuff, that can be a place of attraction. And this becomes an impediment. This becomes an impurity. This becomes a kleshta. Even this, going for the good, can generate kleshta karma. All kleshta karma forms a deposit that mandates future action. All kleshta karma, through the practice of yoga, slowly but surely gets eroded, gets erased. However, it's important in order to move toward that purification to have an in-detail understanding of one's own proclivities. Now, some questing after happiness, after the sugar, can be innocuous. It can be 
really actually quite salutatory for a person to desire to be in a happy state. It could conduce toward the cultivation of sattva. But unfortunately, many times, something that feels good, something that feels as if it's bringing happiness, in fact, holds hidden pitfalls. So for instance, if someone loves food, food makes you happy, you eat too much food, or you eat too much of particularly sweet food, all manner of diseases resulting from excess can develop. So that an attraction slips over into an addiction, and this channeling of energy toward the pursuit of that object of addiction can lead to extremely unhealthy behavior. On the other hand, we have dukkha. And interestingly, some personality types are more inclined to go to the place of the negative or to be really attracted to, in the words of my own son during middle school, he just sort of looked over at me after a very chilling parent conversation about how to keep young people, how to keep middle schoolers out of trouble. And we had to sign, we were asked to sign all of these very austere agreements that really were very unusual in, in my mindset. But he just looked over at me and said, Dad, I want to develop some bad boy appeal. So there is an allure to the dark. Tall, dark, and handsome, mysterious. Hey, we've heard those expressions. And also this notion that somehow something about risky behavior is just sort of interesting. I think people are even drawn to watch horror movies because of this desire to explore that terrible feeling of being afraid. So this, if it becomes habitual, can be characterized as the klesha known as devesha. And it's also an interesting use of, of terminology when we think of the word devesha, because devesha is actually a cousin word of the English for two. Now, as we've seen with samapati and with yoga, the idea is that you become one. And the idea with devesha is that you always want to hold that repugnant object at arm's length, that you want it to be different from you, you want it to be separate and held away. So this difference, this duality, this devesha, spun negatively can result in an abiding, perhaps depressive state, or an abiding place of complaint. And I think that most of us have known people that are much more adept at complaining than they are at appreciating. 
And this, having become part of one's way of being in the world, can really solidify the klishta karma of Devesha such that you don't want to go there and even recognize your own um, willing unwillingness to deal with the unpleasant because you hate it so much. And you certainly would not most likely choose, unless it is your disposition, to be in the company of people that just always want to complain, always want to find fault, always want to look at the shadow, but complain about the shadow, not look at the shadow for the sake of understanding it, but for the sake of really reviling that aspect of the human condition. Now the fifth klesha, Svarasa vahi vidushopi tatarudho binivesha, abhinivesha, is a desire to enter into experience again and again and again. And it is said to exist even among the vidusha. And the vidusha is an individual, man or woman, who has cleared out all manner of incorrect thinking, has reached a fairly elevated state of consciousness, and that individual still chooses to engage. It evokes a little bit here the bodhisattva vow of the Buddhists, that if I can do it, I'm going to do it. In the words of one spiritual song, I am doing what I can. Are you doing what you can? Sort of this can-do attitude that will see a person through in life, really until the final days, not from a place of attachment, not from a place of repulsion, not from a place of egotism, and certainly not from a place of ignorance, but it's a quality, still a klishta karma, that sustains and allows good work within the world. In the university profession, quite often, there will be that elder who, in most cases, is still excellent in the classroom, in to their 80s, and it's okay because of their abhinavesha, their desire to continue to give, in this case, their desire to continue to teach. So those three present a view, a sort of mixed view, of how to engage personality types. And combined with avidya and asmita, ragadvesha and abhinavesha present a catalog by which to assess one's own personality and through which one can assess and understand and accept the personalities of others. Those who were riddled with ignorance may not make the best company, may require a little bit of equanimity when handling, 
those with egotism. I think we've all learned how to move since we were toddlers around the ego types, and you give them some space, and you keep space for yourself. And I think that probably all of us, certainly including myself, have caught ourselves in a moment when in conversation we realize, oh, I've been talking about me a little bit too long, and then go to that question, ask that question, and how are you doing? What's the update? Recall that power of story and the importance of narrative. Egotism requires narrative, narrative requires egotism, and there's always a time to let it go. With raga, whether it be your special type of cookie or your favorite type of ice cream, okay, we, we can draw very innocuous instances from the well of our experience, but we also need to bear in mind that at this moment in the world, addiction is a real difficult issue requiring social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, that this is a challenge of our time. And it's a challenge that's been with us throughout history. Humans, almost from the beginning, figured out how to ferment, figured out how what to, to smoke, figured out different ways to ingest all manner of opioids, and this attraction leading to addiction has spawned truly a whole industry. And to have it named in yoga, I think, is a very, very important step toward recognizing an issue within oneself or within others that needs to be confronted. And maybe yoga can help, maybe not. Negativity, okay, this abiding sense of devasha. With that personality, uh, we need to develop strategies to, again, not let that person get us down or if we are toward the devasha side of the continuum, to find ways, perhaps through yoga, to elevate the mood. And then abhinavesha, sort of the little engine that could. Those people that keep on going, do what you can to help them and perhaps emulate their goodwill as they continue to build out in the world. Now, as yoga teachers, we can put forward an invitation. We can put forward an invitation to do some svadhyaya in light of the kleshas. And if you are able to find yourself in a place of psychological and philosophical teaching moments, what you might do is describe these different five perhaps as personality types, delusional, egotistical, addictive, negative, overbearingly positive, and ask, self-identify. And it's not like you're this way all the time, every day of the week, but if you were to characterize yourself the last few days, or the past few weeks, or months, or even years, where do you see yourself? 
Do you see yourself as someone who is just completely lost to reality? Do you see yourself as someone that's utterly self-focused? Do you see yourself as really slave to one attraction after another? Do you see yourself in a rut of negativity? Or is there something positive that you can confirm about yourself? And then invite people to perhaps journal. You don't need to look at the journal, but invite people to self-explore. Svadhyaya, to go to that place intensively about yourself, which in the case of the klishta karmas is your lower self, in service of increased understanding, bringing into daylight that which has been perhaps unrecognized, and in the process, fettering out in the movement called for in the samapati of Savichara, looking at one's comportment, looking at one's emplacement in the world, looking at one's tendencies and proclivities and habit patterns, and by journaling them, by also looking at these dream journals where sometimes those moments of embarrassment that we experience in dreams, sometimes these moments of elation and freedom that we feel in dreams, how do they relate to that constellation of the five klishta karmas, of the five challenges of human action that have been identified? Now, this could be a good topic for almost, um, you know, a conversation in small group. One of the great innovations of um, really many meditation classes that I attend, and this could also extend into the yoga world, is that you sit or you practice, and you're in a fairly large group. The teacher gives a theme, for instance, possibly these five personality types that correspond to the klishta karmas, and then ask people in groups of three to just sort of share, what do these personality types mean to you? Where do you locate yourself on this continuum? And where have you encountered challenges with peers or with friends or with relatives where, from your assessment, one of those clashes had really become predominant and then also remind people that trying to figure out other people, often what we do is that as we're finding fault or thinking that we're offering words of encouragement in regard to someone else, we've actually unpeeled a layer about speaking truth to our own situation, speaking truth to our own personality type. So all of these tools, all of these tools of self-assessment and personality assessment, all of these ways of sizing up, reflecting upon different types of klishta karma, become part of the path, become part of this discernment on the proper method or upaya, to move from places of difficulty toward places of greater discernment, 
toward places of greater refinement, and then ultimately toward the place of our best self. Subtle afflictions are to be avoided by a return to their origin. The fluctuations of these afflictions are to be avoided by meditation. Te pradiprasava heya sukshmaha. Te pradiprasava heya sukshmaha. Te pradiprasava heya sukshmaha. Dhyana heyas tadvritayaha. Dhyana heyas tadvritayaha. Dhyana heyas tadvritayaha. It's quite delightful to acknowledge that the origins, particularly of American psychology, find ground in the work of William James, the great pragmatist. William James knew well the work of Swami Vivekananda, and Swami Vivekananda crafted truly an introduction to yoga traditions through the publication of his books, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga, and Raja Yoga. And in this last book, Swami Vivekananda encapsulates and summarizes and explains Patanjali, explains the Yoga Sutras. And not only had William James read these materials, he had also gone to hear some of the lectures that Swami Vivekananda gave as he toured the United States, started in 1893 and through the 1890s. In fact, the book Raja Yoga was written in Pasadena, California, on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and that place where he crafted that book is now a museum. So there's something very American, very California, and also very psychological about this particular set of two sutras. We're reintroduced here to the notion of the subtle, the sukshma. And the subtle refers to these little bits and pieces of vasana and samskara that abide, that hang around from past action. And they are the trigger points, if you will. So through the years, they've been described in so many ways. They are the, the graphing upon which people go to when they're confronted with a situation. 
And due to this abiding nature of afflicted karma, these subtle things become large. A very gross example would be an alcoholic sees a bottle of whiskey, and the alcoholic says, okay, this is what I do, I'm gonna drink this whiskey. Okay. Now, Patanjali and later psychotherapists for now generations have suggested, dial it back, see where that moment of origin precipitated. Tell the narrative, tell the vichara, tell the story, recover the story, recover the memories, talk it out with your family members, talk it out with your friends, process all of this morass of difficulty in a way that you can get a handle on it. I remember some years ago, a self-revelatory statement made by a friend who I had deep concerns for because the drinking had gotten to be a little bit too much. And then it sort of became very clear. A little bit of the point of origin, he said, well, my father was an alcoholic. Alcoholism was good enough for him. It's good enough for me. And I felt a sadness but I also felt that this was an example. This was an example of having an understanding of the source, being able to name that, and later in life, due to health concerns, the alcohol did stop, thank goodness. But that person had enough self-awareness to be able to say, oh, the condition of the family had predisposed me toward this behavior. Now, we could have lots of conversations and counter-conversations and discussions and debates about nurture or nature. This is an example where maybe it was genetic, but maybe it was behavioral, but we know that that person was able to stop. And that was, again, because of a different narrative, a narrative that said, if you don't stop, forget your abhinavesha. If you don't stop, your life will stop. And in this case, Abhinavesha, the desire to live, won out over Raga, the attraction to all that can be experienced through taking alcohol. So again, sifting out all of these layers, seeing what takes priority, assessing, internalizing, now, what is the best environment for those activities to unfold? What Patanjali says here, take your dhyana, and, and let's unpack the word for meditation. Dhyana. Okay, we've already had the word samadhi, okay? and samadhi is this vision that is up close and, and connected, and this is transparency and this sense of unity, okay, that's samadhi. Dhyana 
is again from Dehi to see, and then Ana, sort of extending your seeing in a way that is purposeful, in a way, as we will see later, is grounded in the concentration known as dharana. But it's a way of working the vichara material, working a reflection, an effective and honest reflection on one's comportment, on how one carries oneself, on one's habits, reflecting on one's dispositions, reflecting on all of those pieces that constellate into personality, and a willingness always to encounter the darkness. In the Isha Upanishad, an early philosophical text of Indian traditions, it says that the trivial go to a place of darkness, but the profound, the profound person, the person destined to become a sage, goes to the deepest darkness. And that indicates a courage, a willingness to confront that place of challenge, that place so entrenched that it might be like a fish in water. You don't really have full appreciation, but slowly but slowly, through recovering the narrative, through and sustained interest in unraveling all of the different knots of personality. And actually, that's a technical term. It's called near grunta. That's the undoing, the near of the grunta, the knots, referring to the samskaras and the vasanas, referring to the klishta karmas, moving toward, okay, this is ignorant, this is egotistical, this is addictive, this is negative, and this is sort of okay, because this is gonna keep me going. Okay, being able to sort all of that out through processes of meditation. Now in my own yoga training, not only was I tough on myself, but other people relentlessly were tough on me. And that meant, I'll just give one small example of um, self-understanding and undoing the knot. So I joined this ashram community with a wonderful, insightful meditation leader when I was uh, 18 years old. And being a teenager, really just sort of minutes out of high school and all the difficulties that we carry through high school, was very, very much a bookworm and very disinterested in a life of athletics. And it was partly because I was just plain bad, and it was partly because I felt a fair amount of shame. No one would ever want me on their team. So part of our sadhana, believe it or not, was that there was a Saturday morning softball required of everyone. So every, all the guys had to get out there and play softball. And this was probably one of the most humiliating and difficult experiences. 
And people were kind to me. They would move in, they would encourage me, and I could not hide my self-disappointment when again and again, these self-reinforcing behaviors of, I really don't like this, a lot of devasia, I really am not good at this, a lot of egotism, a lot of, oh, I wish that it could be different from this, a lot of really addiction to wanting it to be different, all grounded in this, you know, horrible place of, of ignorance and, and feeling just so literally wretched. But I had a little bit of a plan. And I had not very good body strength. I had not very good coordination. I had not very good symmetry. I had not very good throwing skills or catching skills, but I could run. And I was in a place, I was living, I had to get to the ashram every morning. Um, I was tending the altar, the haven, and I had in the morning and in the evening, it was only about less than a half a mile away, but I would run there every morning, back every morning at dawn. I would run there every set, sunset when I was done with the blessing of the space, I would run home, and I developed a little bit of speed. And I remember this one wonderful day when I just stood at the plate and everybody had moved in. So I don't want you to get a glorified view of my accomplishment here, but I literally hit the ball over the head, made a home run. And a little bit, not all of it, but a little bit of my klishta karma went into Naroda. And Shortly thereafter, no more softball games for anyone. And I was able to, to this day, to be able to think back happily on how I had arisen out of a ditch and managed to own just a little bit of dignity. More for the sake of Abhinavesha than Raga more for the sake of being able to carry on with work in the world than a place of attachment to ego. So these are the skills that are required of oneself to be able to come to a, a high degree of self-awareness and the skills as a yoga teacher that we're able to impart to others. So by that, I mean, every yoga teacher moves into a room, it could be with a small group, it could be with a very large group, it could be with a very large group, and there has to be a willingness to drop the ego and attune to the vibrations and the needs of the people that are in that space, whether a small number, a large number, or a very large number, and then come up with some strategy for how to challenge the people who have a fairly high degree of competence and how to encourage the people with low competence, whether that competence be a particular move or a particular ability to concentrate or a particular ability to breathe effectively, and to be able to create a space where everyone is invited in. 
And what I've seen on the part of excellent yoga teachers is self-awareness, that whatever that teacher brings to the class is something that the teacher embodies. There's this wonderful opportunity. I invite you out there in the yoga world, shake it up. Go to a Bikram studio, go to a Shivananda studio, go to an Iyengar class, go to Yoga Works, go to wherever you can and learn, absorb, challenge yourself. And as your repertoire increases, you'll have more tools that you can bring to your own students. Now, I know that for some, you're going to say, well, that's totally not what I want to do. Or my tradition says, no, this is not the right move to make. You don't need to stray from your own tradition, but you might come to a deeper understanding of yourself and your own tradition by mixing it up and seeing something else. So as you're there, and assessing the mood. Perhaps I've seen some people that are just excellent at assessing body types and body potential. There's a moment where a surrender of ego can take place and a class can be conducted from a place of vidusho, from a place not of delusion, but of a sincere desire to engage with life and to bring life forward. And then the students themselves will do the work. The students themselves will feel that twinge of ego, of comparison, will feel that repulsion when perhaps a little darkness is stirred up by a forward bend, will feel that elation and that attraction perhaps at Shavasana, or perhaps in a breathing exercise that brings calm. And all of this, mixing all of this up, creates a space for reflection, creates a space of self-discovery, and creates a space for spontaneous meditation. Inquiries can be put forth into the class, asking, do you have a story to tell about the emotion you feel as you perform Dhanurasana? Do you have a story to tell when you do Trikona Asana? Do you have a feeling that you can name as you're requested to do Sarvang Asana? And these stories can be teased out, could be told in a journal, could be perhaps shared or not. And this requires, again, on the part of the yoga teacher, an ability to suspend ego, an ability to get out of the way, to become, for that yoga student, the transparent gem, to become the mirror through which the yoga student has that sacred 
spaciousness, a little bit of a push into unexplored territory in a context of safety, whereby the body and the emotions can be moved, can be rebound, can be elevated. And this truly can be, for everyone, a meditative experience. The residue of karma rooted in affliction is felt in seen or unseen existence. When the root exists, there are its fruits as birth, duration, and experience. These fruits are joyful or painful according to whether the causes are meritorious or not meritorious. Kleshamulaha karma shayo dushta adushta janma vedaniyaha Kleshamulaha karma shayo dushta adushta janma vedaniyaha Kleshamulaha karma shayo dushta adushta janma vedaniyaha Sate mule tadvipako jat yahur bogaha. Sate mule tadvipako jat yahur bogaha. Sate mule tadvipako jat yahur bogaha. Te palada paritapa palaha punya punya hetutvat. Te halada paritapa palaha punya apunya hetutvat. Te halada paritapa palaha punya apunya hetutvat. Karma, karma, karma. The word has long been part of the American idiom, also in the English Oxford Dictionary for a very long period of time. The theosophist who, starting in the 1890s, had published, lectured worldwide, and really popularized this idea, brought to us aspects of this teaching that still remain. Now, some will interpret karma as, oh, it's just my karma that makes me do this, as if no participation in the building of it. They really sort of equate karma with kismet, with fate. But there are others who say, oh, this doctrine of karma, it's about taking responsibility. And this latter part is in full evidence within this triad of yoga sutras. And it says, it starts by saying that the residue of karma, the karma by definition is grounded, rooted, suffused, vitiated with klesha. Klesha, 
Klishta karma governs behavior. Sometimes it's very obvious, and that's active karma, and sometimes it lingers in the background, and that's the unseen karma, the karma waiting for the trigger point, the karma waiting for a situation to arise that will cause a moment, cause a movement that is informed not by immediacy in the present, but informed by some experience, whether an experience of a hurt ego, an experience of overwhelming desire, an experience of profound disgust and dislike, an experience of utter confusion. Those are the moments that present life in its complexity and life in its often difficult texture. And as long as those karmas remain subliminal, as long as those karmas have not been brought into awareness and dealt with systematically, they will return again and again. They will take birth. They will propel for a period of time a person into an experience. So for instance, I'm gonna give a little example from childhood, not by way of, oh, this must be your experience, but I'm sharing my experience. From childhood, and I have no reason to um, have a reason for this, but I did not like cherries. I had a revulsion for cherries. We in fact had a cherry tree right outside the house and it would just fill with fruit at the end of summer and my other siblings would just love picking cherries and eating cherries and eating the cherry pie that my mother made. I would have nothing to do with cherries. And one time I was out with some neighbor friends and we went to the dairy for ice cream. Very commonplace in um, the part of the world where I was brought up. And they thought they were being so kind to me that they got me an ice cream cone. I must have been about eight years old. They got me an ice cream cone that was filled with cherries. And I so hated cherries. And this conditioning, in fact, continues to the very present day. But my aversion to cherries was so profound that I turned my back, I knocked the ice cream onto the ground, and then said, oh, no, 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 it's okay, I don't want anything. But I was not about to eat cherries for the life of me. And that samskara, that impression, that place of cherry aversion, I think serves as one small example of how the quirks of personality can assert themselves, how they come to fruition, and how they can endure. Now that is, again, sort of a quirky thing. I don't think anybody has been really hurt, including myself, by my disdain for cherries. But that's a rather innocuous example. There are other examples of karma 
that can be cited where those who do wonderful good deeds, full of merit, full of what in Sanskrit is called punya, those who do good deeds generate, because of their habit patterns, generate both for themselves and for others remarkable states of joy. And I love the Sanskrit word for joy here, hlada, and I want to um, just sort of tip you to the fact that hlada is a cognate word of the English word glad, clod, glad, and it's also cognate with a word from Italian that's come into English, which is gelato. Um, for me, not cherry gelato, but gelato. And there's lots of gelato that will really bring me joy. So the correlation here is that if one is of good humor, of good demeanor, of good de intent, and delivering an appropriate and meritorious action, then gladness and joy will follow. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha states, the results of karma follow just as the cart carrying a load, as its axle turns and the tire connects with the earth and the load moves forward, goodness will follow goodness, and lack of goodness. Now we can give all sorts of words to this. I don't want to make this too utterly dualistic, but these are two things in contrast with, the, with one another, like sukha and dukkha, but punya and apunya, virtue and vice, merit, demerit, good and evil, okay? These are patterns that can be entrenched, that can be reinforced, through behavior that conditions one for future behavior. Now, if it's apunya, if it's that negative, hateful activity, reviled by all, even by oneself, yet because of culture conditioning, family conditioning, past life conditioning, all of those factors have contributed to the creation of a, of a truly vicious personality, a truly vicious person, then the activities experienced by that person and the activities shared with others will generate what is called peritapa. And peritapa is deeply painful, deeply painful. And We've seen such consequences throughout history. People who have become tyrants, people who have abetted torture, people who have gone to war for selfish reasons. All of those experiences of difficulty that follow are because of the apunya 
all because of the lack of merit on the part of the person instigating the act. So we can sort of reflect here that this particular triad of sutras is making an inferential argument, but not immediately passing judgment. Now, we saw that that earlier duality that I, I mentioned of sukha and dukkha, okay? Sukha leads to raga, happiness leads to attachment, dukkha leads to difficulty and to aversion, dukkha and devesha. Yet both of them fall within the category of klishta karma. So we can think a little bit perhaps about the second klesha, and we can think a little bit perhaps about how goodness done by an egotistic person can become a pitfall. And we have a word for this in the American idiom called a do-gooder, where there are people that, oh, I'm going to help these unfortunate people. And is it really about helping those people? Or is it about aggrandizement of one's own ego? And this is sort of a sticky wicket to negotiate. And note here that, yes, rather dispassionately, Patanjali states, the good actions will bring joy and that bad actions will bring um, difficulty and pain, but neither bring freedom. Recall, the goal of yoga is chitta vritti naroda. The goal of yoga is entering into samadhi. The goal of yoga is the collapse of the binary between the subject and the object. The goal of yoga is not to be good, to be good, to be good, but the goal of yoga is, in a sense, to rise above it all and to be able to see the effects whether they be good or ill, and understand that even the operations of goodness are not at the level of one's highest true self. So this is where the subtlety of Patanjali's inferential argument becomes quite nuanced and quite fascinating, and also becomes an opportunity for the yoga teacher to be able to see and assess the mind state and the emotional state of the person engaged in yoga. And recall, some people walk into a yoga class and they were born flexible, they were born strong, they were gifted with balance, and in some instances, those people can also, despite all of their beauty, all of their gifts, be just filled with ego. So then the challenge becomes, 
How does the yoga teacher acknowledge the gift without stoking up the ego? This is where the kleshas become quite the dance, quite the tango, the rumba of figuring out. Do you go forward a little bit here, a little bit there? Do you find that person's weakness and then challenge them with something? Or is there a problem with that also? I've seen instances where people had been given such positive feedback about their physicality that to be suggested, that for it to be suggested that there's something that you can't do, they're gonna, as a type A, work even harder. And I've seen people that have, I've known people very well who have injured themselves because of their own driven ego-based nature. So a little bit of nuance with that. And then we're also asked to recall the earlier usage of sukha and dukkha and punya and apunya. Recall the Brahma Vihara, that if you're in the presence of someone who is happy, be friendly toward them. If you're in the presence of someone who is really suffering, be compassionate. If you're in the presence of someone that's really good, Cultivate sympathetic joy, not envy, not jealousy. And if you're in the company of someone utterly bereft of merit, be in a place of equanimity. Go quiet, observe, maybe move out of the way a little bit. And in those instances, one simply as a yoga teacher or simply as a human being has to trust that the universe, that is this beautiful law of karma that we've just explored, that the universe itself will present the corrective to that person who has completely gone astray and that may not be the time or place for you to be the occasion to present that corrective. So this complex, multi-layered approach to human psychology and to ethics demonstrates it's incumbent upon the yoga teacher in terms of her or his own self-understanding as well as for the benefit of the teachings offered to students, it's important to go with the nuance. It's important to allow the shadows to come in to high profile. It's important not to jump to conclusions. It's important to remember anitya, that everything changes. It's important to be patient, to not give up. Part of equanimity involves a call to this sense of patience, this removal of one's own ego. Oh, I'm gonna fix this. And allowing the universe, ruled by this law of karma, 
to do what ultimately must and will be done. Martin Luther King Jr. gave this wonderful quotation that helps as we think about the difficulties and the complexities of karma. He said, the moral arc of the universe curves, it bends toward justice. And just as the scales of happy, sad, of merit, demerit can fluctuate, so also yoga, meditation, self-reflection, austerity, dedication to a higher goal, all of these become tools through which we can find within ourselves and perhaps create for others a place of calm, a place of understanding, a place of acceptance, and a place of freedom. For the discerning one, all is suffering because of conflicting fluctuations in the qualities of nature and because of the suffering due to the manifestations of sorrowful habit patterns. The suffering yet to come is to be avoided. The cause of what is to be avoided is confusing the seer with the seen. Parinama tapa samskara dukhaer gunavriti virodacha dukam evam sarva vivekanaha. Parinama tapa samskara dukhaer Gunavriti Varodacha Dukameva Sarvam Vivekanaha Parinama Tapa Samskara Dukhair Gunavriti Varodacha Dukameva Sarvam Vivekanaha Heyam Dukamanagatam Heyam dukam anagatam, heyam dukam anagatam. Drashtur dushya yoho, samyogo heya hetuha. Drashtur dushya yoho, samyogo heya hetuha. Drashtur dushya yoho, samyogo heya hetuha. Remarkable cascade of insight in these three sutras. These three sutras evoke and invoke the philosophy of the Buddha, as well as the teachings of the philosophical school known as Sankhya. For the discerning one, the Viveka, Sarvam dukam. In other words, for the person who has developed 
skills of discernment, everything, everything is threaded with the potential and in many ways the inevitability of difficulty, of suffering, of dukkha. And this suffering arises because of these conflicts between the gunas. We earlier talked about how the manifest world expresses through a solidity and a heaviness, through a vibrancy of energy and activity, ascending and orienting ultimately toward a sense of transcendence. But these three, tamas, rajas, and sattva, find themselves perpetually in flux, perpetually in change, with one prevailing, another one taking over, a little bit of the third saying, hey, remember me, remember me. But with this constant change, this parinama, with this constant sense of tapa, of difficulty, of really the afflictions stirring up attention and a friction, this morass of rising, going forward, descending, swirling and twirling, this constant shift between joy and pain, all of this is grounded in a fundamental misperception that klesha that we approached and thought about earlier, that klesha of asmita, durdarshana shektur ekatma tevasmita. In this case, this notion that the drashtar and the dursha get mixed up with one another. That the scene in the instance particularly of ego becomes mistaken for the seer. Now the whole project of yoga, of Buddhism, of Sankhya, of Jainism, ultimately really of any spiritual practice, is to avoid the suffering yet to come. Now, the suffering yet to come, Heyam Dukam Anagatam, one of my very, very favorite yoga sutras, inspires us to acknowledge, first, the perdurance and the presence of difficulty, but also, because of the theory of karma that has already been explained, to acknowledge that we do not need to remain as victims of our past action. That we, with the intention of being able to avoid the pitfalls of the past, can, through our yoga, create a go-to place, 
we're able to create the go-to place of remembering whatever happens that isn't really me. Whatever I have done that isn't really me. Whatever I'm doing in the present that isn't really me. And whatever may happen and will happen in the future It isn't really me. Recalling back that definition of Ishvara, that special Purusha, that Purusha Vishesha, that remains untouched by the effects of karma. In orienting one's identity away from repetitive, habitual, ultimately painful actions, that that remembrance, that mindfulness, that attentiveness to this philosophy of a self beyond the self, this is what will bring that release from suffering. Rather than thinking, oh, this is who I am, to be able to allow that discernment of difference between the seer and that which is seen. To be able to develop the skill of dispassionate regard that allows one to move the identity away from that clinging driven by the afflictions, that clinging driven by ignorance, egoism, attachment and attraction, and repulsion, and moving toward a clarity of perspective, a prasada, a chitta prasada, where rather than being at the mercy of the past, to be able to move into those moments of perfect clarity, chitta prasada, the drashtar, the seer, rather than being chained to the scene. Now, for a yoga teacher, there's so many opportunities to connect with student experience. So many opportunities through this for yoga students to be able to cherish those moments of those bliss occurrences, those transcendent events, not only as they come to that place of calm and stillness and equipoise in yoga class proper, but also to reflect in their own experiences about those times when that clenching can be released when that holding not only to the five elements, to the five senses, to the five processes through which the senses land upon the elemental world, but also to reflect and to release those moments of ignorance, those moments of egoism, to be able to release those moments of attachment and repulsion and even release 
this compulsion to keep on doing, to keep on manifesting. Okay, those blessed moments give a taste of freedom. Those blessed moments can occur while absorbed in the beauties of nature. Those blessed moments can occur in the simple activity of undertaking action not purely for the sake of one's gratification, but those blessed moments can occur in performing an activity for another. I recall some years ago, a student of mine in California made pilgrimage, was going to be in New York City, and took the train out to Long Island and went and sat before the teacher, before Garani Anjali. And she sat, as she would often do, in a position of welcoming, creating a space of silence so that the student could sort of feel, just really get in touch with whatever constellation of kleshas would present themselves in the moment. And she inquired out of that silence, so ask me something. And the student from California gave this example. He said, I feel so resentful when my mother asks me to take out the garbage. And he says, after years of living independently, as I finish up university, I really need to stay with her for a while. And it's not easy returning and living with your mother. And I don't want to take out the garbage. And he sort of gave this sheepish downward turn of the head. And this was sort of a true confession about moments of resistance. And again, Guruma abided a little bit of silence. And then cheerfully and playfully said to the student, she's your mother, just take out the garbage. And as with so many such encounters, this became a literal set of simple instruction, and it also became metaphorical for life as we move forward. Ham dukam anagatam. Do what you need to do in order to set up conditions in the future that'll be free of suffering. And on so many levels, by cleaning out the garbage and by anticipating the need for the garbage to be clean, that will anticipate the request that earlier had been so annoying. And it will bring one into really a mood of lightness that, oh, yeah, I know this garbage is going to collect up and I know what needs to be done to avoid all that happens with the garbage reeking, 
with all that happens when someone else has to point out to me that this task needs to be undertaken. And really all of yoga was included in that little encounter. What we're able to do through our discernment, through our viveka, what we're able to do is know the history and anticipate the future. If a behavior, a selfish behavior, a tamasic or a lethargic behavior, if a repeated pattern has caused difficulty, even illness, has caused mental disturbance, has caused us to be unhappy with ourselves and annoying to others, that we, through our discernment, are empowered through yoga to read this difficulty, to know this difficulty, and then return to the toolkit of yoga and perhaps just simply breathe. Svasa, prasvasa, kumbha, holding, holding the inhale, and then holding the exhale. Finding that pause that refreshes, finding that pause that purifies, finding that pause that allows us to move into moments of discernment. And with this tool of Viveka, with this insight and wisdom of Sarvam Dukkham, the very first of the Buddhist's pronouncements about the nature of life, we're able to move a little bit away from tamas, we're able to, through this positive yogic action, we're able to move up to that sense of higher purpose. We're able to begin to become not only the seer, but we're able to truly gain skill and action. We're able to, both literally and metaphorically, know the nature of the garbage and to be able to gather it when it needs to be gathered and remove it. It helps cultivate a sense of purpose of goodness within oneself. And as we think of the mother, as we think of the universe, we can see a benefit of service. Service will help minimize ego. By engaging in, in activities of bhakti, by engaging in activities of devotion, through the very simple 
motions of life, we're able to create that flow, we're able to create auspiciousness by decentering the ego, by working at making it about service of the world rather than always service of oneself. One small example that might be suggested for yoga students is to challenge themselves to recraft an email and recraft an email not using I, me, or mine. And in that simple writing exercise, the other and service of other becomes primary and the ego blessedly can be diminished and perhaps even in the highest moments of experience can become transparent, allowing the seer, allowing that consciousness to become primary. Heum dukum anagatam, we can and we will thereby avoid the pain of the future. The scene has the qualities of light, activity, and inertia. It consists of the elements and the senses and has the purposes of experience and liberation. The distinct, the indistinct, the designator and the unmanifest are the divisions of the qualities of nature. Prakasha kriyastiti shilam butendriyatmakam boga apavargartam darshyam. Prakasha kriyastiti shilam butendriyatmakam boga apavargartam darshyam. Prakasha kriyastiti shilam Bhutendriyatmakam, Bhoga Pavartarkam, Bhoga Apavargartam Dursyam, Prakasha Kriyastiti Shilam, Bhutendriyatmakam, Bhoga Apavargartam Dursyam, Vishesha avishesha linga matra lingani guna parvani. Vishesha avishesha linga matra alangani guna parvani. Vishesha avishesha linga matra alingani guna parvani. Now this rather remarkable and very dense 
couple of sutras, introduces the listener and the reader to the complexity of the Sankhya system. And in Sankhya, in order to develop the skills of discernment, it's important to understand the 25 constituents that comprise the human experience. And those 25 constituents include the two that we've already approached, the drashter, the seer, purusha, and the dershya, the seen, prakriti. Prakriti has three qualities that manifest as the world comes to be known. We think of these, we name these as tamas, and this sutra indicated with the word stiti, or fixed, or standing. We know them as rajas, or activity, and this sutra kriya, all of the realm of movement. And then the third, sattva, here is designated as prakasha, the realm of open expanse, the realm of light. So those three, as they vibrate, as they find their emplacement within the world, express into elements and senses. Reviewing all of Sankhya, Purusha, Prakriti, Seer, Seen. The Seen has the three gunas, and the three gunas, in the very beginning, vibrate within a plane called Bhuti, vibrate within a repository of emotional residues. Here, we're going to see that referred to as the linga, the personality, the abode, the residue, the remaining of past karma that lingers waiting for expression. And as it pushes forth into expression, it forms the asmita, it forms the ahamkara, it informs and forms this sense of ego. And out of that ego, the mind vibrates with a directionality informed by that linga, informed by that personality, informed by that treasure trove, or that morass of all of the past samskaras and vasanas. And that mind then, through the elements and through the senses, connects with the world of elements and construes that world in a very particular way. So what are the elements? What are the senses? Now the elements will begin all the way at the bottom. We'll begin with the most tamasic, with those that are fully established, fully formed, fully stiti, and we'll work our way up to the more 
subtle aspects. And then we're gonna look at the purpose of all of this. Okay, the earth element, Prithivi, is related to two primary senses, okay? So the subtle aspect of earth is our ability to smell the earth, and this ability to smell finds itself lodged within the nose. So that's the sense capacity, the sense action, connecting with the element. And it also has to do with the bodily function. And the most foundational of organs within this bodily complex is in fact our ability to give Earth back to Earth through the evacuative process, okay, the pooping process. So that's one collection of elements and senses to be understood. Slightly above this, we find also within the realm of stiti, also within the realm of tamas, the element of water. And that element becomes known to us through taste, through the functionality of the mouth, as well as it finds a bodily home in what later yogis call the Svadhisthana chakra, but it finds expression through those various ways in which the body releases fluid. So earth, water, within the realm of stiti, within the realm of tamas, and connected to correlating senses and bodily functions. Now we move up into the realm of kriya, into the realm of rajas, and we find yet another group of elements and senses. And the most obvious of the elements in this regard is light, fire, agni, energy, and this light is received by the organ of the eye, which allows us, through the, the subtle process of manifestation, to see form. So the eyes see form, brought to us through the illumination of light and heat, and then the correlative bodily manifestation of fire can be found in the hands. Whatever it is that we feel through the heat of desire, we manifest into the realm of action through our hands. We take things, we give things, all driven by that eternal and internal fire. Also within the realm of Kriya, within the realm of Rajas, we have the breath. The ever energizing breath related to the external element of Vayu. And this in fact pervades both our largest internal organ, which is the lungs, as well as our largest external organ, 
which is the skin. So the sense of touch related to the air, related to the breath, allows us to move. And again, the correlative external motor organ would be the feet, the feet that propel us to move in imitation of how the wind itself manifests perpetual motion. Earth, water, fire, air, and then the most subtle of elements, moving really into the realm of prakasha, moving into the realm of pure swa, of sattva, and this element of space finds a connection through the human body, through our sense of hearing attached to the ears. And this correlatively works with not only our capacity to create noise and to fill space with our voice, but also to receive vibration from this vast expanse of space that allows us to become oriented, that allows us to find balance within the human body. So let's review. Smelling through the nose, the particles of fragrance arising from the earth, and particles that we return to the earth through our function of moving our bowels. Next, flavor received in the mouth on the particles of water that also flow through our body, forming the foundation within the earth, both earth and water. Then moving upward to the element of fire, receiving those messages and vibratory photons that are part of this great wondrous energy that originates ultimately with the sun, allowing that to be recognized as the form presented through our eyes, and then feeling that heat within our belly, feeling and expressing that heat, that heat of desire through our hands. Next, wind. Wind attaching itself through touch to the workings of the body and allowing the body to move through the agency of the feet. And then eventually rising earth, water, fire, air into space. This beautiful connection through the ears that allows us in combination with the voice to announce our presence into the world and to receive the world through all of these senses, earth, water, fire, and air, got together in this place of space. What a beautiful sensorium. What a beautiful gathering of internal and external. 
all of that categorized as the scene, as Prakriti. And this realm has two purposes. One, it's to provide experience. And two, ultimately, it brings us to a place of liberation. Now, the discernment requires that we be able to recognize, identify, and name that which is distinct, that through our discernment, we see that, oh, this is a particle expression of earth mode or water mode, that we begin to see it in terms of its sort of genus, its place of origin, and that becomes a way of retrieving the world in terms of its indistinct expression within the realm of the gunas. And then on the emotional level, why do we designate things to be the way they are? Why do we consider a particular automobile to be highly desirous? And in this, we begin to go to the realm of the linga, to the realm of the personality. We begin to be able to sift out, oh yeah, this happened to me in childhood, and this is why I want things to be a particular way. And by being able to know that realm of personality, and through that yogic process of vichara, to be able to understand the layers of subtle influence of the vasana and the samskara, then we can move into the alinga. Then we can move into that place of abeyance. We can move into that place of suspending the attachment, if only for an instant. And in that breath, in that moment, in that instance and instant of release, we experience freedom. Vishesha, the distinct, Avishesha, the generic, it's really the gunas. Linga, matra, oh, it's really only about past history causes me to be who it is that I think I am and to carry this ego laden with kleshas. And once that viveka, once that discernment takes root, there can be a moment of pure awareness, a moment of freedom. So invite your students as a yoga teacher to reflect on the gunas. Invite your students to learn about all of these different bodily capacities. Invite your students in their journal and maybe even in small discussion to share small instances about how their personality came to be whether it be a love of comic books, 
and maybe an abiding affection for Star Wars or Harry Potter. This can be really quite playful. And how all of these layers of conditioning, philosophical, consumer-driven, spiritual, all of these things are grounded in the stuff, the raw material of personality formation, and how learning the lessons of observing and reflecting upon this process of human development can serve as an encouragement to develop new experiences of purification, new experiences of going through yoga, through meditation, into a place of quiet, into a place of remove. Not a remove that is aloof and utterly, let's say, effete or supercilious or like I'm better than you are. But no, not that sort of remove, but a remove that allows all things to settle, a remove that allows one to see, oh, as quoted in the Bhagavad Gita, it's just the gunas acting upon the gunas. Earth is doing what earth needs to do. Water is doing as water needs to do. Fire is doing what fire seeks to do. Air is doing the job of air. And here we are in a beautiful, beautiful space. A space of yoga, a space of meditation, ultimately a space of purpose and a space that provides freedom. The seer only sees. Though pure, it appears intentional. The nature of the scene is only for the purpose of the seer. When the purpose of the scene is done, it disappears. Otherwise, the scene does not disappear due to its being held in common with others. Trashta Dershimatraha Shudopi Pratyayanupashyaha Drashta Drishimatraha Shudopi Pratyayanupashaha Drashta Dershimatraha Shudopi Pratyayanupashyaha Tararta eva dursyasyatma. Tararta eva dursyasyatma. Tararta eva dursyasyatma. Kirtartam pratinashtam apyanashtam taranya sadarana tabat. Kirtartam pratinashtam apyanashtam taranya sadaranatvat. 
Kirtartam Pratinashtam Apyanashtam Taranya Sadaranatvat. These sutras continue the discussion of Sankhya. And it reminds the yogi that the seer, the drashta, only sees. This echoes the description in the Sankhya Karika, the text by Ishvara Krishna some 1500 years ago, that laid out the distinction and the similarities between the seer and the seen. But the seer does not initiate. The seer does not act. The seer does not create. The seer does not change. All of those activities, initiating, acting, owning, appropriating, all of those belong within the realm of the ego. And recall that the seer is not ego. The problem is, it appears as if it's doing that, but the distinction must be borne in mind that whenever the eye wells up, one abides in the realm of Prakriti, a necessary realm, necessary because ultimately all things that are done are done within the realm of the seen. All things that are done are done with and within the activities of the gunas. All things are done through the agency of Prakriti. But why? Why? Why does the world present itself? Why does the ego well up and cause that body, the emotions, the senses, the mind to do all of the things within this realm of the engaged elements? And the answer, according to Patanjali, is that everything is for the sake of the drashtar. Everything is put on display like a pageant for the sake of the one who witnesses. Everything exists, as noted earlier, for the experience and liberation of that highest self. Now there's a story from the life of the Buddha, where the Buddha, on the occasion of the birth of his first and only son, was given quite a spectacle to witness. 
And many, many, many dancing women put on this remarkable, remarkable show. But the Buddha, having been engaged in some rather interesting philosophical reflection, as well as probably a little bit in a mood of, oh my gosh, what's happening? The birth of the sun. He sort of fell into a blessed slumber. And as all of the women on the stage noticed that the Buddha had fallen asleep, they became very sleepy and as if the magic that we find in the Cinderella story was happening, one by one, all of these beautiful women who had been so elegantly attired and were moving and dancing and perhaps even singing so magnificently, they all fell asleep. When the last person on the stage fell asleep, the Buddha woke up. And when he woke up, rather than seeing the magic of the allure, the magic of the pageant, he saw these women, their limbs askew, their mouths hanging open, snoring. And suddenly, something that had been so magnificent lost its charm. And the Buddha, in a sense, awakened to an understanding that that which can be lifted up and presented also will recede, will come to a stop. And as he saw that they had come to a stop, he felt an abiding sense of awareness and calm within himself and found in that moment of wisdom a resolve to pursue a life designed to always return to that awareness, to always return to that place of calm. And such is it within the realm of yoga. Within the philosophy of Sankhya, it's the ebb and flow, it's the play, it's the acknowledgement that whatever reality presents itself presents in order for the seer to truly become a witness. And in those literal moments of pause, in those moments of quiet, when the gunas are brought into an equipoise, no longer vibrating out, manifesting the world, no longer doing the bidding of those habitual samskaras and vasanas. That moment of quiet that emerges brings peace, brings freedom, 
And in those moments, it is as if all externals have disappeared. That moment of profound silence, Patanjali has already introduced to us as samapati, becoming like a clear jewel, where the difference between subject, object, and the mediation between the two dissolves into a transparency, dissolves into a moment of citta prasada, a purified consciousness of total presence, of alacrity. And then when that moment itself gives rise through the breath to another thought, to another identification, then one re-enters the realm that is held in common with other people. We retreat into a place of deep quiet through yoga, through samapati, through samadhi. We become the svarupa of the drashtar. We become, through the quieting of the fluctuations of the mind, we become that witness. This is the amazing gift of yoga, this capacity to be able to go into that place where the seer only sees. The wisdom of Sankhya and yoga lies in its affirmation of the purpose of the scene. Why the three gunas? Why experience? Why personality? Why samskaras and vasanas? All of that, all of that drama calls us to a recognition that we, through the raw material of our life, through the journey that has been, through this lifetime, engaged yet again, that we are given lessons and tools through which we can return ourselves to that place of quiet. So as a yoga teacher, you are given an amazing gift. You are given an opportunity, both as a practitioner of yoga and as one conveying yoga to others, to be able to go into that place of quiet and then think, as you design your pedagogy, as you design your curriculum and your lesson plans, as you individualize your teaching, you're given this gift to thread together authentically how you can share your place of quiet with your students and then invite 
your students to create their own pathway to that quiet. My own son and his wife participate in the Bay Area in what has come to be known as Shoga. And for them, both wonderful, wonderful musicians, they find their place of quiet in the performance of music. And in a very beautiful rapport with a yoga teacher who will lead the students quietly into a particular rhythm of movement and a rhythm of breath, they're able to create this beautiful triangle of yoga teacher, musician, and persons participating in the yoga class. And that shoga movement for the yoga teacher becomes a moment of wow. For the musicians, it becomes a moment of gift. And for the yoga students tuning in, it becomes a moment of immersion in a state of being absorbed, of being whelmed. And in that, the yoga teacher as seer, the musician as performer, and the yoga student as audience, they go into a place of transparency. They go into a place where everything disappears. So invite your students to cherish those moments. Those moments, whether in a yoga class or in perhaps a musical event, a kirtan or a bhajan, or in performance of mantra at a time of home meditation, or in those moments of silence, wherein even the mantra not spoken is able to vibrate and vibrate in a place of harmony, a place of the pranava, a place of that om, inclusive of and rising above manifest reality. Ask your students in their journal to note those places and spaces where they make a profound connection with quiet. Those places and spaces whereby the ego blessedly becomes suspended. Ask them in their journaling to recall and give honor to whatever it is, their ishta, their dhyana, their dhyana abhimata, their desired meditation. And for each and every person, it will be a unique path. One of the great metaphors for this state of freedom is that rather than thinking of this freedom as signing up with a program where everybody is in the ocean together, the metaphor from the Yogadrishti Samuchaya, the metaphor is that everybody is a lake unto herself.
And that lake has unique characteristics. Yet this lake here, and this lake here, and this lake over there all share in common the possibility of allowing the ripples and the fluctuations to subside and allowing for that calm awareness to flower forth. All that needed to be done has been done. All that needed to be thought has been thought. All that needed to be tasted has been tasted. All that needed to be heard has been heard. All that needed to be touched has been touched. All of the experiences have done what they need to do. And according to yoga, at those moments, those moments of equipoise, those moments of calm, those moments where all experience has served its purpose, those moments allow the person of yoga every morning, moment by moment, occasion upon occasion throughout the day, month after month, year after year, uninterruptedly over a long period of time, through this practice, through this practice of the eternal return to that place of repose, that place of equipoise, that place of understanding, that way of engaging the scene so that the scene allows you to recover, to restore, that provides the blessed gift of Sankhya, that provides the blessed presence available through yoga. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills. <laughs>